Welcome to this podcast from the Religion Media Centre, the only podcast to sit firmly in the space where religion and the media collide. We aim to ease that relationship, strengthen links that already exist, and help build new ones through chat, reflection, and comment. Thanks for listening. Welcome to this week's Religion Media Centre Briefing, which is on the 50th anniversary of BBC Radio 4's The Sunday Programme. There's a book that's coming out this week charting its history with conversations listed around the headlines covered during that period, simply called Sunday, written by Ed Sturton, a current presenter on the programme, and Amanda Hancock, who's been associated for many years with it as a producer and editor. Unfortunately, Ed can't be with us today because he has to present the world at one with the regular presenters having been sent out to the Middle East uh, to cover the story there. But we are very pleased to be joined by Amanda. So thank you, Amanda, for joining us. I know actually the book is uh, the lion's share of the product of your research on the programme. Take us back to the beginning then in 1970. What was the intention of starting the Sunday programme then? Well, I'll just take you back even further, so just to provide a bit of context. So when Reith set up um, the British Broadcasting Company, which then became uh, um, the corporation in the 1920s, religious broadcasting was very much part and parcel of the original um, uh, sort of uh, feast of programmes that they had. So it was very much religion, light entertainment, certain amount of news, drama, those sort of things, um, because he was very religious himself and he had very set views on what he thought religious broadcasting should be about. And so essentially it was to do with worship programmes. Um, I mean, they they were very bold. They went out all over the country, lots of OBs everywhere, and it was reflective talks. And um, that really sort of set us for religious broadcasting. Um and it set the scene for religious broadcasting for the next effectively 40 years, because when you get back onto the 1960s, religion was very largely worship programmes and talks. And obviously there have been some amazing talks like C.S. Lewis has done various things, uh, all sorts of famous writers and people have done stuff. But essentially um, it was that sort of um, uh, type of programme. So type of programming and obviously presenters had changed and tone had changed and different things were happening, but it was essentially worship and talks. So uh, Colin Semper, who was then a producer in the department, who later became head of the department, he realised that religion was actually sort of becoming a bit of a ghetto in terms of what it was about and the perception of it was very much it was worship. So he was very keen to pull it out of that and put it into a sort of current affairs setting. So that's how the Sunday programme started was and i think we started the same year as uh, the today program i think uh, or pretty close to it anyway so so then the idea was that you know religion doesn't have to be just about worship religion affects people's lives in so many different ways and the sunday program was one way of looking at it so our remit right from the very start was all about uh reporting on the big religious issues but also providing moral and ethical um, and religious spect- uh, perspectives on the news of the day. Thank you, Amanda. And we're joined on this call today by many presenters and producers and reporters who've worked on the programme over the decades. And we're going to go through some of the highlights of the stories that were covered and, and the way that they were covered. So if I could bring you in uh, one by one, we have Mike Waldridge with us, former religious affairs correspondent, uh, Alison Hilliard, former presenter of the programme, with Trevor Barnes. I think, Trevor, you're probably the one longest serving reporters on this call. Um, Emily Buchanan, also a former uh, religious affairs correspondent and presenter of the show. Christopher Landau, uh, another former uh, correspondent, now a clergyman in the Church of England. And we have Ellie McCain, former producer with the Sunday programme, and Tim Maybe, a reporter from the 1970s. Have I missed anyone out? I think that's everyone, isn't it? So thank you all very much for joining. And in the preamble to this show, um, everyone was talking nonstop and over each other, which is how we used to do meetings, as I remember, and probably how this uh, briefing was going to progress. So 
We'll start with the topics, and I know we've got uh, people who are going to lead off on the topics and do chip in your observations and anecdotes as we go. Um, I think, Mike, I'm going to start with you, if I may. So um, the book makes mm. it clear that the Sunday programme, um, well, it, it charts the, the topics that were um, covered um, we're under 19 titles. We're not going to get through all 19. But it does specifically say that it wasn't just about reporting the Church of England and domestic religious issues. It was about a global take on religious stories around the world. And that was very much your beat, wasn't it? You were, before you were the religious affairs correspondent, you were a correspondent in South Africa, South Asia, and then also a world affairs correspondent. Can you take us through some of the highlights of your reports as you remember them for the Sunday programme? I don't know if you'd like to start with the period in South Africa, which, which you said when we were talking earlier were highlighted to you, brought back memories as you went through the book. Uh, yes, certainly did. I first sort of became involved in reporting on South Africa um, before I became religious affairs correspondent. I was there uh, initially as East Africa correspondent, travelling down frequently to Johannesburg and other parts of South Africa throughout the 1980s, really, um, and becoming involved in the coverage as the opposition to apartheid intensified, particularly on the grounds in the black townships, protests, grew more and more clashes with the security forces. It was becoming an ever bigger news story. So that that was my first period of regular involvement with it. And in the course of that, um, I, sometimes that did indeed involve reporting for the Sunday programme, not least because um, religion uh, in the shape of religious figures uh, playing a part in the usually the protests against apartheid, the institutionalised racial segregation of that area because um, they were so prominent in the protests. You would uh, very often see uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu in particular, but also people like Frank Chikani and uh, Alan Boussac and, and Peter Storey, the head of the Methodists, and, and a good number of other people uh, actually in the front row of protest in many of the townships and uh, in that sense leading the confrontation with the security forces. Uh, often uh, very much trying to prevent those uh, protests turning to violence. I remember Desmond Tutu frequently shouting out, Bopa, the, uh, uh, in the Zulu language, uh, uh, an appeal to people to kind of calm down, particularly hope to the security forces so they wouldn't start shooting people, but also youngsters to refrain from throwing stones as, as they would so often do. So there was a period then of, of reporting generally on, the, of course, the um, township unrest, the politics of the era, era. but uh, quite often this, I think, was of particular interest to the Sunday programme because of the church involvement in it. And it was on both sides. You had um, the Dutch Reformed Church, essentially, the majority of it standing um, with the government, the white government of the day, with the exception of um, a few very famous figures like Beers Nordi, for example, who become very much a leader of the protesters. A strong story, a story that grew in its importance, the religious dimension of this, um, throughout the time until I became, uh, at the beginning of 1989, the um, Southern Africa correspondent based then in Johannesburg, and so day-to-day -day covering all the events. And of course, that really was a turning point at that time. That's when um, P.W. Berta um, uh, finally uh, resigned, um, in, uh, handed over to F.W. de Klerk as the leader of the white government, who pretty swiftly then called what turned out to be the last white elections. A few months later comes uh, de Klerk's famous unbanning of the ANC and all the other um, opposition parties uh, and groups. And then uh, just a couple of weeks later, the release of Nelson Mandela. So I was covering all those events, of course, as then the correspondent for South Africa, not only for all the rest of the BBC, um, radio and, and quite often television as well, but also regularly then for the Sunday programme. So that really got into it. And indeed, I was there for the rest of 1990 as well, after Mandela had been released, the beginning of the negotiations when the violence by no means stopped, uh, stopped continued to be a very tense period. And uh, it was about then, as I look at the screen, when I think we had, a, as far as I remember, a, a Sunday away day, if you like, we had a 
Sunday moving to South Africa. Was it for the World Council of Churches visit, Alison? No, and Trevor, I were you there too? Yes, Trevor and I were both there. Yes. Hello, Mike. Lovely and to I, see you. I was there at that time and then on to the, uh, eventually to the first non-white elections. I remember that very well, Mike. In fact, Trevor and I went out and were joined by you. And I think it was to mark the first election in 1994, the first election that, that, okay. that basically brought about the really symbolically mm. marked the end of apartheid, because that was the election of the government that Nelson Mandela had headed. And it was the first non-racial election. I remember you very <clears throat> powerfully reporting from those election results. And, and going into the townships, Trevor and I spent a lot of time with Christine Morgan, who came out as a producer, mm. um, who just to report on the everyday violence that was still continuing, but the momentous changes that had taken place. And I remember doing an interview with Desmond Tutu and Alan Bousak, as you say, and just powerful testimonies of standing by that apartheid struggle um, and, and seeing momentous change in the country. And, 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 and Mike, you had very personal memories to, to share at that time too, I remember from your, your reporting there. They've been so involved with the forces of opposition to apartheid, so they came down and had a, a big kind of celebration of the change, the transformation that, that was unravelling then. Uh, and I do remember, and uh, this is involves some lighter moments perhaps, but there was a huge celebration in Cape Town in a stadium there, which was presided over by Archbishop Tutu, and he preached and he danced, of course, and I remember that I was contributing a lot to a Sunday programme that was actually coming out from London, you're right, at, the, at that time. So uh, sort of sharing in the presentation and describing what was going on around um, and doing it all as we did in those days, or at least as I <laughs> carried on doing when others had moved on technologically, but still through my my ewer and a tiny little, um, we just got the first, I think they were called the M4s, the satellite phones. So a, a pretty uh, a, a wire reaching out from my Euro at the back of this inside this stadium to the where the satellite was outside. And the uh, wire end just stretched to my ewer and threatened to break and cut me off at any moment. So desperately trying to cling to this thing and uh, keep the broadcast going. Probably couldn't hear a word any of you were saying at the other end, but trying to feed into that with a description of that particular Extraordinary meeting. I was going to say there was one moment when we kind of overlapped. We hadn't met in person, in person, Mike, but I'd been sent to the Soviet Union as was, and to report on anti-Semitism, and I happened to be in Moldavia as it was then, and got wind of a story about the the local priest, the Orthodox priest, being involved in the first free elections. So I went along, sort of introduced myself, and he said, do you want to come to the rally? So I was up there with a ringside seat of a million Moldavians, first free elections ever, and I was next to this priest. And I phoned the story in, and and I was so, I thought, I'm going to get the Pulitzer next, just to <laughs> wait. And then they said it was actually the 11th of Feb 1990, and I just heard the words, sorry, Mandela's just been released, and it was wall-to-wall -wall Mike Waldridge after that. <laughs> well, I mean, the programme did go to many countries around the world, didn't it? I'm sure you've all got stories from uh, from different countries. Can I, but I'd like to just pick you up, Alison, now, because you, although you are not a BBC reporter anymore, you are still specialising in issues of faith worldwide. So you're the senior programme director for Wilton Park, a place of global dialogue funded by the FCDO in the UK. Um, and your memory, you were telling me earlier, was connected to stories about Israel and Palestine, which you visited, reported from, presented from. Can you tell us some of the headline stories that you remember from your period? I remember giving the then producer of the programme, David Coombs, um, complete periods of nightmare, I think, actually. I, I was dispatched off to interview Yasser Arafat, I remember. And goodness, when you think of change times, that was 19, would have been 1992 or 93. And I went to Tunis to interview him in a safe house. As you know, at that time, he was under threat of Israeli assassination. So he never spent much of the, of, uh, much of the same a week in the same house, let alone the same night in the same house. And I remember being taken blindfolded around Tunis to a safe 
house to interview him. But it was at that remarkable time um, of interviewing him around the time of the peace process. So it was the early days of Oslo before 1993 and interviewing him about the role of holy places, the role of Jerusalem. He had recently married um, a young Palestinian Christian woman, so the role of Christians in the Holy Land came up in the interview too. Um, but that was just an extraordinary time of hope to think that as the Sunday programme, interviewing him and then following him as he returned to Gaza in 1994 and interviewing the, the local Palestinian Christians in Gaza, I remember clearly at that time, um, at a time of really believing that, you know, sworn enemies could make peace and that there was a time of compromise and the, the, the Palestinian-Israeli situation could be addressed in, in, in some way. But even, you know, one of my most vivid memories from Hezbollah, and, and this was, again, an interview that you wouldn't even get today, let alone be able to do today, was going to Beirut to interview the head of Hezbollah, um, who'd just been recently elected, um, Sheikh Hassan Nasrallah, about, you know, then it was newly formed, he was the newly elected leader. Um, he had just brought his party to take part in the first elections in, in Lebanon, and they were very much wooing the Lebanese population by offering education, offering food, offering practical assistance. So it was looking at that whole social wing of um, Hezbollah and, and about what would become an increasing role in Lebanese politics, but right at the very beginning. Of, of that Hezbollah connection. And, you know, listening to, to last week's programme, for example, some things haven't changed, have they? So that peace dividend of 93, 94 has led nowhere. Um, there's still the sense of the holy places being central to the issue. The issue of Jerusalem has still not been resolved and was still there in those early interviews. But, you know, Hezbollah and Hamas, Hamas was only in its infancy at that stage. And Hezbollah, you know, the, I, I think of the piece on last week's Sunday of trying to unpack the the demands of um, the, the demands of Islamists. It very changed times. ISIS obviously wasn't mentioned, and that very radical nature of um, an Islamist demand um, was 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 nowhere to be seen really. So changed times, and in pre nine eleven changed times, but you know so much that has not changed on the ground in the reporting of that story. So I went back many times for Sunday to to present programs from Jerusalem, from Bethlehem, from Gaza, from from Lebanon, and so on. But the religious dimension of that story, unthinkable to have had the um, fault lines in Israeli society that somebody's been reporting on for, for, for the last year exposed at that time. Um, but so much has changed and so little has changed and so little from that sort of heady days of looking at a, a possible new Middle East. Thank you, Alison. Mike, do you have uh, recollections of covering the Israel-Palestine story when you were a world affairs correspondent? I do, uh, and occasionally from uh, from Jerusalem, and indeed up from the uh, Lebanon border as well. Uh, while I was a world affairs correspondent, you're right, and probably from time to time contributing to um, Sunday's coverage during during that time as well. Um, and would absolutely share what you you've just said, Alison. I mean, it has been the most desperate time, hasn't it? This this past week and the possibility of so much further um, fragmentation. Uh, and, and the kind of exploration that Sunday does is absolutely essential for, for listeners, I think. Um, you know, too much programming does not even consider the religious dimension of so many crises and conflicts and even you know, more hopeful situations around the world, essential to do so and uh, always, but never more than at this time. Staying with you, Alison, and slightly changing gear, uh, you said that one of your main memories of reporting for Sunday was from Northern Ireland, which is how your story began as a reporter for Sunday. Just tell us about that, your story, and the stories that you covered at the very start. I suppose I started working for Sunday when I presented um, its sister programme in Northern mm -hmm. Ireland called Sunday Sequence. And, you know, at that time in the 80s, 
you came from a background where religion was everything. Religion was your school, religion was your community, religion was your politics, religion was your friend and religion was your enemy. And so I very much came to someday with that background of not seeing religion as um, or religious programming as something to be compartmentalized, not in any sense seeing it as something where you just discussed women priests and issues of sexuality and the Anglican communion. Um, but seeing it as central to why people made the decisions that they made and why they did the things that they did. Um, and very much coming to Sunday. And I remember one Sunday we brought back to Belfast. I was presenting Sunday at the time, but going back to Belfast, um, and that would have been in the early 90s, um, talking about the role that religious leaders had played in, in the peace process. Um, and wow. interviewing Jerry Adams, I remember. Um, I, I, I don't think we got much out of this interview, but asking him about the whole issue of forgiveness, uh, asking him in the light of Gordon Wilson, who was then, his daughter Marie had died in the Inneskillen bombing, what he made of the issue of forgiveness. But, you know, he was talking about the role of Catholic priests like Father Alex Reed and the role that priests had in Clonard Monastery the role that they had played in helping him shape his vision of peace. And 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 again, in that story too, there, there was sort of some sense that religious leaders were coming together to push that peace, to push it behind the scenes in talks with paramilitaries, to push it externally in talks with politicians. We had Tony Blair talking openly to Ian Paisley about the Bible, many interviews for Sunday with Ian Paisley. So contrasting really how religion on the one hand was was pushing a, a sectarian division and religion was promoting reconciliation on the other. And of course that has been the bread and butter of Sunday to look at how both of those things can, can happen, both towards peacemaking and towards conflict. How much a part of uh, North, the Northern Ireland story, the island story, is religion these days? I'm wondering if uh, Emily or Amanda may like to kind of come in on that. We, we did um, a chapter about abuse in the church, which we centred on Ireland, uh, just because it was a sort of story arc in a way um, that we could sort of go from the beginning to the end. I mean, obviously, loads of denominations. Um, try, trying to sort of find a way through it, we we centred on Ireland, and um, I think it also tells tells another story about the relationship between the church and the government in in the Republic, um, and how as revelations started to come out about what really went on and the cover-ups that went on and the collusions that happened between the church and the government being really imploded um, when you've got the Ryan Report, the Murphy Report, all these sort of things. And then you get the stories about um, the Magdalene laundries and and Sunday sort of charted its way all the way through that with, you know, the, the various different um, Irish reporters uh, who were covering the story at the time and, and also interviews with, with survivors of abuse and, and various things like that. And I think it's really interesting just seeing how quickly things have changed in Ireland, because once the government, you know, really tried to push away from the church um, and then suddenly you get, you know, abortion opening up, you get same sex marriages happening. Um, you know, church attendance in Ireland just completely plummeted. And in a way, the church is sort of trying to pick up the pieces there. Um, and it, it's a very sad story about what happened. Um, but I think the thing that sort of shocked me really was just how quickly the country changed in its attitude towards the church there. Um, mm -hmm. And how, you know, there are many people who were very devout Catholics who will never, ever go in another church again. I mean, there are there are there are sort of signs of revival and stuff going on, but it was massively damaging. I think that's really true, Amanda. Except I think that there was a a, a unique dimension from what happened in in Northern Ireland with the troubles, as opposed to what what happened with the change that you've just rightly outlined. Um, I was talking to um, Archbishop Eamon Martin a few weeks ago and, and he was talking about, well both Archbishops of Armagh, both the Catholic and the Protestant Archbishops talk about this kind of 
vacuum that there seems to be at the moment, this kind of hopelessness there seems to be at the moment, this lack of dividend of the peace process with a kind of generational memory that has forgotten that, who's forgotten the, that there's no longer violence or no longer killings on the same scale. But that vacuum and hopelessness with a peace process that seems to, after 25 years, have gone into stalemate, that, that, that peace walls are still up, that communities are still divided and schools are still divided. And, and I think it's really interesting to just chart what the role of religious leaders is in Northern Ireland today, you know, and, and, and where that has gone in, 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 in a non-existent dormant, a non-existent political, um, a, a non-existent political process. So I think it's a very complex story in Ireland, is it, but one that Sunday has returned to time and time again. Thank you. Another story that it's uh, returned to time and time again is uh, the coverage of Islam. And Christopher, Christopher Landau, uh, you were a correspondent for the World Service in the 90s. I wonder if you could just explain or describe your, um, your feelings, your reflections on that period in, in history. I think um, as someone who was always formally employed as a mainstream journalist within the newsroom, but then worked for Sunday as well. And indeed, I will always be very grateful to Amanda for taking a punt on this um, newly emerged BBC News trainee with very little track record, but a theology degree. And she uh, she took the risk. Um, but I think the reason I was taken on within the newsroom was that so many journalists didn't know the difference between an archdeacon and an archbishop, you know, and had no clue really how to distinguish within the life of the church and um, someone who did, you know, might have half a chance of helping navigate some of the coverage. Um, but the absolutely chronic lack of understanding of Islam was one of the things that just kept coming up time after time. Uh, it meant latterly, you know, job interviews that I went to at the BBC would always involve a question about, do you know the difference between Sunni and Shia, for example? But what you were recognising was that within the audience, often that recognition wasn't there. Uh, and I think what I would say is that Sunday, to me, has always been this place that you knew you could turn for some intelligent analysis of these issues, even if, as a correspondent, sometimes you had your head in your hand when you heard how other outlets across the BBC might be dealing with it. Um, and of course, you know, I look at the the people on this call and, you know, you're the, the names that I kind of, uh, you know, listened to um, as I thought, gosh, I would never join that group of people. Um, and certainly I think by the time Amanda took me on, the thought of flying out a presenter and a reporter to South Africa uh, was long gone. Um, but within the context of the huge budgetary problems the BBC has faced, and of course, um, the sidelining of religion in many ways, the dismantling of the TV department relative to um, what's still possible on radio, uh, actually Sunday has consistently kept its place in the schedule. You know that people are still listening and engaging. Um, and you think it's been a place where even as the BBC's wider ability to cover religion well has ebbed and flowed, shall we say, euphemistically. Um, actually, you've known that you can turn to Sunday and find something authoritative. And, you know, it's a great sadness to me that um, so often across the wider BBC, religion has been marginalised. Um, but Sunday really has been a, a constant. And I think um, for that to be a consistent place of expertise within the life of the BBC is so significant. And I always think that there's a Sunday story, if you like, which um, probably, you know, today in the world at one or whatever wouldn't touch and otherwise would only be big news within the niche of a particular faith perspective, you know, within Jewish news or, you know, on the Church Times or whatever. But Sunday will often bring that to a wider audience and actually help people realise, no, this is significant. and. You know, when you look at the events of the last week, my goodness, we desperately need a better understanding of religion, whether you're trying to approach it impartially or whether you've, you know, um, uh, you know, saddled yourself to a particular faith in the way that I now have, you know. There was one particular story that you were famous for, uh, Christopher, which was the interview with Rowan Williams and his comments on Sharia law. Do you want to take us back to that moment? Mm -hmm. 
Well, I mean, sadly, I had uh, moved on from Sunday largely at this point, um, but only because I suppose I'd done enough half-decent things on Sunday that I got a reporter role on the world at 1 p.m. Um, and fascinatingly, you know, was approached by Lambeth Palace um, what they thought would be a damage limitation exercise in relation to the Archbishop making a what they knew would be a controversial intervention. But frankly, they were worried about how the newspapers would write it up. And so they thought a fairer interview uh, on the BBC would be better. I stand by the fact that I did a fair uh, interview. Um, but, you know, by five o'clock that day, uh, Downing Street, the opposition uh, and various other figures had distanced themselves in no uncertain terms from the Archbishop's mm. comments. Um, and yes, it was a kind of slightly infamous moment for me. And I certainly was offered the job at the World Services Religion Correspondent off the back of it, I think. Um, but it was absolutely uh, a story that demonstrated um, the chronic lack of understanding of Islam, um, uh, including among programme editors at the BBC. You know, there were some pretty embarrassing uh, people invited on to speak on behalf of Islam, you know, at that time. Uh, and this recognition that the kind of level of um, understanding of who might speak, at least for a significant portion of the Muslim community. So many programme editors and producers just had absolutely no sense uh, of that in a way in which they wouldn't be permitted to if it was economic affairs. And possibly they wouldn't make the same mistakes about the church either. Um, but I think just, it's just touched the nerve in terms of attitudes yeah. towards Islam within the wider public as well. Just remind us what the story actually was. What what did he say in the interview? So he said that he felt um, for reasons of community cohesion, uh, aspects of Sharia law should be incorporated into British law uh, to enable uh, British Muslims to be able to integrate successfully. And of course, when you look at the situation, for example, facing a Muslim woman in a polygamous marriage which is not recognised then uh, in British law, you could see that there were real social problems that he was seeking to speak into. Now, whether it's the place of the Archbishop of Canterbury to promote that kind of reform is one question. Uh, and if you are going to make that kind of highly controversial intervention, it might be helpful to have lined up, for example, all of your interfaith contacts um, to support you in public once you've made the statement. And the astonishing thing I realised was that at the point that that interview was broadcast on The World at One, there were about three people who'd read the speech in full, and I was one of them, uh, and his head of comms was the other, and pretty much no one else had. Um, so it was a very revealing, astonishing Moment, But of course, Sunday, and you'll see in the book, um, the way in which Roger Bolton and others, you know, led some really uh, very, very detailed analysis of what had been said, what the response was, um, the kind of level of engagement that you really need on that kind of story in which, um, I, you know, I, I still think Sunday is just fantastic for providing. <laughs> The story of uh, British Islam has just trans is transformative, isn't it? In those fifty years, Amanda, you were, I think you've got a statistic in your book where you describe the number of Muslims who were in living in Britain in 1970 when the program began, to the situation now where there are many Muslims, many different denominations, many different groups, and still this lack of understanding that Christopher's just been talking about. Can I just ask you to reflect, or perhaps bring Trevor in on this as well? The picture of British Islam that's emerged in that period, as the number of Muslims have, have has grown in this country, and the way British Islam has developed and formed and found its own voice in, in that period. Would any of you like to, to comment on that? I think one of the interesting things when I was researching the book and, and just looking back at how we'd covered Islam, um, back in the 1970s, because then the programme was predominantly about Christianity, but we did introduce other ideas. And, and it it was much more about um, looking at religion in, in, a, in a sort of more educational way. You know, this is a mosque, this is what people do, you know. Um, and there were certain issues which 
we covered, like there's a very early interview with a, an educationalist talking about separation of girls and boys, you know, for doing PE and things like that. And that was a, a big concern within the community. But to be honest, we didn't really cover Islam that much in the early years. Judaism was the religion that we tended to go for. And I don't know whether that was because we had better links in that way. But then when you had things like the Salman Rushdie affair, which happened uh, over his book, and suddenly people were in the streets and they were burning, you know, books and stuff like that. I mean, that was a real sort of wake up call, I think, to a lot of people in the country about, oh, hang on, what's going on here? And people started to see Islam in a slightly different sort of way. And then I think the big the big thing, which in a way Islam in this country hasn't really quite recovered from, was 9-11. I mean, that was such a massive thing that happened. And it just totally changed people's perception of Islam. I remember talking to an actor last year who was Muslim. And he was saying that he was quite, you know, he he said, oh, you know, before 9-11, I was seen as some sort of slightly exotic person that they might have on, you know, as part of a cast in a television drama or something like that. Once 9-11 happened, he didn't get any work for ages. Every time he went for something, people would think he might be a terrorist, you know, that there would be something dodgy about him, that he would be supporting ISIS or Al-Qaeda or something like that. And it, I, I mean, I don't know what Emily thinks about, about all of this, but it just totally changed reporting. I remember talking to Caroline Wyatt recently and she was saying, she said, after 9-11, all I did was report on war. I reported on war and violence and about um and about terrorism. And yeah. all the time, Muslims were having to justify why they weren't a terrorist, you know, and there was this knee-jerk reaction from people about Muslims. And I, I don't think we've quite got beyond that yet. You know, every time something happens, like a violent act somewhere, you know, everybody immediately thinks it must be it must be um, a terrorist, something that's happened. Um, I, I, and yeah. I, I, I don't know quite, you know, and I feel sorry for people in the Muslim community because they're having to keep, you know, saying, you know, I don't believe in this. I don't associate myself with this. This is not what Islam's about. And, all the time. and I think I think Sunday had a big role in terms of trying to explain. And I remember when the Bataclan, that horrible, you know, thing happened when those terrorists went into that concert hall in Paris and started shooting everybody and stuff like that. And that and then we were on air, I think the day after or two days later or something. And, you know, we talked to lots of priests and people, you know, um, from French churches in London and all the rest of it. But then we had this big discussion about what is IS theology? Because they came out with this big statement and trying to unpack it and trying to explain to people, you know, this is a corruption of Islam. This is a particular thing, you know, um, and, you know, it's still it still goes on today, doesn't it? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, it's so interesting because I started, you know, my first sort of big Muslim story, as it were. It wasn't for Sunday, but it was for the BBC Two assignment programme. And I did quite a lot on Algeria and that when they had their um, elections and one of the parties that, that won was the Islamic Party. So I spent, you know, a lot of time with these sort of fundamentalists who at that time, a lot of them, their sort of the people they admired were based in Bradford and, you know, the 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 English were the sort of heroes because we were, we were, seemed to be sort of looking after them and they didn't like the French. But, we, but through that, I've really got to understand a lot more about how these movements sort of come up you know what they were protesting about and and why they're there and i think the problem has really developed because of these huge atrocities like 911 and then 77 is that people they almost don't want to know why they're there or what the context is it's just bad it's evil and they should all be condemned and i think you know thank goodness for sunday and it's always a battle with news actually to break the stereotype of of you know oh they're all terrible um, and they all just want to destroy everything because the, the nuances are huge and it's a tiny minority who will believe in that. And, and there's always a reason, you know, someone doesn't wake up in the morning and say, hey, I'm going to be a terrorist. You know, it's sort of there are all these roots to it and, and, and these ideas and all of that. And I think that's where I think that's where Sunday is so important. And I've I've had to battle, you know, when I've done stories in, in the newsroom at the BBC and they've you know, maybe it's been about Sharia law or about some subtlety or that, you know, there are certain things that are, you know, not all bad, as it were. And, and editors just can't, they can't understand. Someone's either, something's either really bad 
or it's good. And it's 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 the same in so many conflicts, isn't it? It's how news covers things. One side's good, the other side's bad. And we're very bad at holding, kind of holding two thoughts in our head that there's nuance on both sides. I mean, that's the whole issue, really, I think, that news, one element of news is conflict and controversy. And we like nothing better than a row. And of course, within religion, there have been lots of rows, internal rows, the all the better, whether it's about women priests, women bishops, whether it's the churches challenging apartheid in South Africa or communism in the Soviet bloc, whether it's solidarity in the Vatican and helping this, that and the other, whether it's, you know, faith in the city and people and the church complaining against certain aspects of the Tory government at the time, the minor strike. There are all the kinds of things that we report on, first of all, as news. But I think where Sunday was able to score is it reported the news and then it reported the analysis afterwards. And there was an excellent piece this week, for example, I thought with the Muslim chap, I've forgotten his name, who was unpacking Hamas. Mm. Uh, how reflective they were of ordinary Gazan civilians. I mean, if coming, coming back to you, uh, Alison, when, when we, we were fortunate having Alison in those days of the back-channel agreements and negotiations that were just coming to the surface, she had the contacts. So whenever she got a whiff or a tip-off or a suspicion of a story, she could put it to the then editor and and we would run with it, you know, and it would be reported as a story, but then dissected afterwards. And more time would be spent on it than perhaps on the Today programme. Brother, give us some examples then. Great rows within the Church of England you've covered in your time. Recurring rows. Well, within the church, I suppose it was women bishops, women priests. Um, the, I mean, it was pretty much a male-dominated clergy when I joined. Um, there were small movements. I remember interviewing Florence Lee Tim Oy, the very first woman priest, but she was very much an outrider under specific conditions that were quite um, pertinent to, to where she was at the time but weren't really relevant. There were kind of lone voices. I think the movement for the ordination of women did exist then, but it it was it was a small voice and then of course it got bigger and bigger and bigger and it became one of the dominant things sexuality another one of the big issues that divided the church and where there was a conflict there was always a story um, it's quite interesting though that what we've not mentioned and i think this is testimony to how important the program is is i mentioned their sexuality um Peter Tatchell was a great friend of the program, not, uh, as I understand it, a Christian believer, I think a, a, a humanist in outlook, but he was a great friend of the program and he used to take part in it. I interviewed him countless times. Ditto, Ludovic Kennedy won't mean very much to lots of you now, but um, Richard Dawkins will, or Claire Rayner, all of them atheists, humanists, um, Polly Toynbee, they all took Sunday seriously and they entered into debate with clerics who they wouldn't normally have mixed with and had a view, and the views were politely um, but intelligently put. And, you know, if you're interested in religion, it was an interesting programme. And when I started in the 80s, we've not mentioned him, actually, and I think he does deserve a mention. There was a chap called... Um, <laughs> so, uh, John Newbury, and he was the first person to hire me. In, in many ways, he was a journalist monkey, and he was a Methodist minister, but he wanted to make the programme something that would get itself on the news when the programme ended, and frequently he did. And then I think we were helped by people like Gerald Priestland, who'd established a solid role in foreign correspondent coverage, doing religion, doing his series on Priestland's progress. And he was a friend of the program. We were then followed by dist distinguished journalists like Mike and Ruth um, um, and um, Rosemary Harthill, who just developed the journalism 
alongside a real under and and we were trusted i think above all we were trusted people trusted allison um with their secrets as it were they weren't quite secrets because they knew they would probably get out that was the point of it but they knew they would get a fair hearing with gerald priestland um in in his uh in his book autobiography said about Sunday, about it, how um, the staff on Sunday and in the religious department in general sort of moved from clergy who were interested in broadcasting to broadcasters who were interested in religion. And I think I think that was very telling and, and very true about, um, you know, what happened uh, to the department over the years, I think, and made such a difference, I think, in terms of journalism and the Sunday programme. Newbury said to me when he first hired me, gave me my first chance. And Christopher, we all remember those first chances. Um, they're very important. Um, and he said, rather like a sports reporter doesn't have to be able to play for Chelsea or even to be in Sunday League, but he or she has to be interested in football. Well, that automatically ruled me out as any sports reporter. But I did have an interest in religion. Um, and if you were interested, and if you did the work, and if you did the journalistic reporting, then that, that was all you needed. You, 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 you didn't have to do a faith test to see whether you believed in this. In fact, we've had people who didn't believe a word of it, but the issue was very interesting. And also, I, th I think there's a certain tone that he set, which was carried on by David Coombs and, and other people. Yeah, and absolutely. John actually was somebody who, who employed me as well. And I came in as a researcher and um, I, I had actually got a degree in theology, but I'd gone off and done lots of other things, joined the BBC and other departments. And there was a there was a perception about the religious department that everybody were clerics and they all went around singing hymns which of course is ridiculous, but that's the sort of general view that people had. So a slight intrepidation when I saw there was a six-month attachment in religion, I was thinking, God, yeah, I've been to university, I've done all this, I've never done anything with it, I ought to apply. So I, I applied and I sort of got this attachment. The first day I arrived, I thought, God, is it going to be like, is everybody going to be going around singing hymns? And John walked into the office and he had a sheriff's badge on. And I, I just sort of looked at him and I just thought, I'm going to be fine. And and actually, you know, in, in the years that, you know, I worked on the programme on and off and everything for, for a number of years and everything. I think there was also, we covered, you know, really serious stuff. We also covered lots of light stuff and great stories. But there was all this sense of fun as well. There was all this sort of sense of camaraderie and, um, you know, that... Um, it, it was a real joy to be on the program, you know, that you were doing, you were doing difficult stuff. But at the end of the day, you all came together on a Friday night. We used to go to this wine bar, didn't we? Which is where we had our meeting where everybody came back after they'd been out reporting and stuff like that. And, and there was this real sense of a sort of team effort and everybody trying to do their best um, to report religion in the best way they could. But with a sense of, you know, this is a really good thing that we're doing. Well, I think, um, Sunday at his best does very well is to and and in a distinctive way really amongst programs is that it explores people's experience of religion and the nature of religious conviction which are extremely important to look at because it underpins of so much of what happens in in life um but the point about Sunday is that it does it in a way that's not only seeking to understand it and explain it explore it but also to challenge it where it's important to do that. And there's really, it's not just necessarily generally a failure to do that across the rest of the BBC, but also across the rest of the media in many ways. Uh, and I do think that's something it should, it, it's often a reason to do that and, and should go on doing it if you're looking at all for any thoughts on the future of the programme. I think also it's worth saying, you know, that there were light moments in, in the programme mm. and it was quite nice because, you know, we used to do, specials on religion and the arts and this that and the other and um there was always a sense of humor that would come out sometimes uh in items i remember once we did something there was something in the news about um sikhs wearing beards or something and some big argument it sort of sprung up in the sikh community about something to do with this and we got some guy who came in who was um, at the University of Leeds. He, he was a lecturer there, he was Sikh, and he was sort of like a friend of the programme. And he came in and said, can you come in and can you talk to us about beards? Why do Sikhs have beards? 
And then we were sat there thinking, how can we do this interview in a really interesting way? You know, so I said to him, how long does it take you to, to do your your turban in the morning? And he said, oh, about four minutes. And I thought that is the length of this item. So I said to him, could you just do the interview while you're putting your turban on? <laughs> so he went, yeah, all right. So he did the whole interview with Ed looking slightly bemused doing the interview as he, he put his turban on. Well, Christopher, you made the point that this is radio after all. And uh, although there may not be so many reporters on the programme now, one thing that made it live was was the reports that you all did when you were out on the road. Yes. I, I mean, I think um, actually Sunday has maintained the place for the crafted radio feature. I mean, I learned a lot just listening to what Trevor was doing on the weeks that I wasn't being, uh, you know, uh, employed, uh, for example. Um, but I, I remember uh, once being dispatched to um, a woman who was making Lent stew uh, and doing a kind of cookery item. Um, but this Lent stew was so disgusting. I completely lost it as we were recording this. Um, and I think it's the only time that, you know, pre-recorded sort of uncontrolled giggles from a reporter have been broadcast because Carmel Lonergan just sort of thought this was so hysterically funny. Um, and uh, I can say that the Lent stew was utterly inedible. The stories we just heard there really just fulfilled a Rethian pledge, information, education and entertainment. Mm. <laughs> I'm going to bring in Tim maybe at this point, because Tim was a reporter in the 1970s in the very first decade. And that's what you remember doing, Tim. You don't remember any of the office politics or the big discussions about issues of the day. What you remember is the stories. Yes, I mean, my job was very much more silly than all you've been involved in, because we were right at the beginning. I heard the programme. I was a young freelance. It just started. And I rang up David Winter and started offering him pictures of religious life in Wales, I would do the uh, pilgrim trail to Bardsey Island, the island of the saints at the top end of North Wales, or discovered that there was a wonderful ancient form of music still being used in mid-Wales called Plugine, which sounded almost medieval in its way. And the one that my wife particularly remembers and likes is the time that there'd been a spate of churches being ransacked for their goods and chattels in Italy. And we, he, David asked me to see if I could find a church in Wales that had something that might be equally valuable. So I found a little village near Monmouth called Skenfrith, and it had a wonderful 13th century cope. And I went there and pretended to... Uh, cut the glass covering it and taking out all the beautiful piece of surplus with all its uh, inlaid gold weaves and that sort of thing. And then I went off to find the vicar, who was, interestingly enough, um, tending goats in his churchyard. And I went up to him and I put on all on tape, said to him, Mum, I'm afraid I've just stolen the Skenfrith cope. And he said, oh, dear. That was my sort of contribution to the programme, yes. I'm afraid. <laughs> Those were the days. And we haven't really talked in any great depth about the skirmishes that the Sunday programme had with the bishops over the years. Um, with uh, its reporting of the Church of England, uh, over women, uh, as has been discussed, but over all the other issues, faith in the city, the, the, uh, the meetings between Thatcher and the bishops, the uh, trouble that Runcie got into with the Falklands. Um, Amanda, just talking to you about the, the times when it was tricky for the Sunday programme to speak truth to power, to report on the Church of England. What were the hot disputes that took place between the Church of England and the Sunday programme? And how tricky was it for it to hold a line as an observer of the Church of England rather than a participant in it? It was difficult, and to a large extent, it, it sort of depended on who was in the press office at the time of the, the different organisations. Um, there were times when Lambeth Palace and Church House weren't really communicating with each other, and uh, it was quite difficult. And also, I think because Sunday was a programme that right from the start had wanted to ask critical questions, not not judgmental questions, but just to, to try and get to the bottom of everything, to try and unpack what was going on, all the rest of it. Um, and by and large, you know, your bishops, your archbishops, uh, religious leaders just weren't used to being questioned on what they had to say and having to account for what they were doing. And so this 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 was, you know, uh, 
potentially quite a problem. Um, you always used to find with archbishops that you probably got one shot at an interview with an archbishop in the early days, like an archbishop of Canterbury, um, because they come in thinking it's going to be a cosy chat and they'd just taken up the job and all the rest of it. And then they would have an interview and they would be picked up on this and that and everything else. And you could see them coming out looking a bit shocked. And then you were very lucky if you got another interview with them again afterwards. Um, I mean, the exceptions to that was Rowan Williams, who was a, a supporter of the programme, and he would when he was able to come on the programme. And actually, Justin Welby has been on more than once, which is which is good. Um, but I think you, you, you used to have this cat and mouse game that we used to play, where um, certainly um, in the sort of 90s and into the 2000s, where a press release would be issued, a bishop would make a statement about something, you know, good story. Um, it would be issued on a Friday afternoon and then suddenly you would find when you were trying to get an interview that that person had gone away for the weekend or um, nobody was available to comment. And so you did end up having a cat and mouse game trying to find people who would be willing to talk. And um, and then there would be moments when, you know, the, the church just, you know, refused to cooperate. That's the key question, really, how the, the Church of England and other churches have responded to this interrogation and how they've upped their game or become more interested or more proficient at public relations now than they were. I don't know if anyone would like to comment on that, Christopher, perhaps. Well, I suppose the landscape is changing so rapidly, isn't it? And social media, meaning that actually a tweet response to a particular issue can have the impact that previously only an appearance on the Sunday programme or whatever would have. And I think it's really interesting to see how the kind of existing media then respond and adapt to this changed circumstances. Um, and you you certainly see with senior religious figures, I think the whole range from remaining in the bunker and not doing any social media through to really quite a lot. And Justin Welby, I think, has been quite um adventurous and open i mean i th I think also in terms of dealing with the press <clears throat> one of the things i say in the postscript of, of the book is also how dealing with other faith communities has changed over the years mm. because in the early days um especially you know in a way where, where you've got christianity which is a very hierarchical religion um obviously in judaism they've sort of dealt with um, things in a different way with having a chief rabbi and and now we have a senior rabbi for the reform Judaism. But in, in the non-hierarchical religions like Sikhism and um, Islam and uh, Judaism um, and um, what's that, Hinduism, um, it, it's really difficult and it still is a problem today about who speaks for whom. Just to see today um, that um, Justin Welby has done a joint statement um, you know, at Lambeth Palace um, with Ibrahim Mogra as the kind of, you know, face of British Islam. But that's really because Ibrahim, you know, is a fantastic person and has been around for a long time. Um, but, you know, it, it's, but of course, I don't think that um, Rowan Williams or George Carey would have done that kind of press statement with the cameras outside Lambeth Palace. And so you see how the religious leaders themselves are kind of adapting and changing and being more confident, I think. I wonder what you feel the future of the Sunday programme is in an age when non-religion is rising and Christian affiliation is declining. Does it have a place even for the next decade, let alone the next 50 years? I wonder if I could ask for your views on that. Go to you first, Mike, and then all of you can chip in if you have something to say. I think you just put your finger on a real challenge in that, the, the, the way um, for many people, as we know, uh, they now would say they have an interest in a much broader kind of what they call spirituality, I guess, rather than any um, fixed and identifiable religion necessarily. And who on earth are going to be the spokespeople for that if we if we want to, if if we need to have them? Uh, and so the risk is that that will make the established leaders of our faith now less relevant to many people, to many listeners. How are we going to both capture? and uh, report on, and if you want, need them, get opinions from a much more amorphous uh, and broader spirituality. So I think that's a practical, that's a practical challenge, but I don't think that should stop um, 
anybody carrying on doing exactly what he's done at the moment and um, the scrutiny that it does provide of as i said earlier religious conviction and religious experience is something that really doesn't happen elsewhere and is extremely important i wonder whether a format for um expansion uh, in a way would be to have the today program now has its today debate which gets a lot of attention and is often very good and goes way beyond whatever is in an individual program um and i don't know whether there have ever been sunday debates um slight problem there with the name of it i guess if, <laughs> if it's going to go out on a tuesday or a wednesday or a thursday but uh, could the sunday program generate a uh, debate of, of what would generally be very different kind of subjects from from the today program but, but that would actually draw more attention to all that is done i think it'd be good to try think about how it might be done i also think i think uh, in, in some ways, I think Sunday is sort of more important now than it, it's ever been. The, the really big issue for news, which it's sort of getting to grips with, with all these different types of um, uh, units that have been set up in the newsroom, which are trying to counter fake news and, mm. um, you know, fake information. You know, where, where people get their information from is um, is really difficult um, because a lot of it's on social media uh a lot of people treat uh young people treat you know the sort of established news uh with suspicion um and i think when you're talking about things like uh faith and the big issues like in the middle east or or wherever it happens to be or trump and the religious right and all these sort of things i think one of the things that sunday is really important for is actually providing that corrective and yeah. so having these correctives, having these ways of sources that people can come back to and say, right, OK, well, actually, I can trust this. I know that what they're saying is right, I think is really important. Thank you very much, Amanda. And thank you, everybody, for taking part and uh, look forward to our party together. The Religion Media Centre is an impartial and independent organisation providing an expert resource for the media and other interested parties to help the reporting and understanding of religion and beliefs. You can find news, fact sheets, briefings and lots more on the website at religionmediacentre.org.uk where you can also sign up for a daily roundup of stories about religion and belief from the UK and around the world straight to your inbox. If you'd like to support the podcast and the work we do, contributions are very welcome. Thank you if you do, have or will. It all helps us continue to tell the stories that matter and it's hugely appreciated.